You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Weekend World on Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuhu. Good morning and welcome to all our listeners. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It is Sunday, the 17th of July, 2022. The time now is 10.03. Listen, you can listen to Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile or online 24 hours a day. The Weekend World Show are, sorry, the Weekend World Show is a current affair show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and all things current. A message of Islam for the West. Join us and share your views or stories by phoning 0208-687-7878 or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Joining me in this morning, as always, is our Chief Librarian at the Bethel Fatumas, Waleed Ahmed. Assalamu alaikum, Waleed. So, the scorching day, um, and we're expecting to go into the high 40s. Mm. Must be remind you of and good memories of your home like, country, the Kenya. Yes, Nairobi was always very good weather, but Mombasa was the one, uh, was a place where you had uh, high temperatures. Indeed. And mosquitoes. Yes, Nairobi was, a, uh, I think, a consistent weather throughout the mm, year. It apart was near the equator, wasn't it? Yes, that's mm, right, apart mm. from the rainy season, I think mm. it wasn't. We used to be out mm. in our costumes or trunks mm. or whatever it was, uh, mm-hmm. enjoying the rain when it came. Okay, uh, I don't remember being... No, yeah, no, no, no I <laughs> certainly do that. Mm-hmm. But Mombasa, I remember going to Mombasa about seven years on. Mm. Uh, I remember going to Mombasa se- uh, seven years after coming here, and it was quite unbearable. Mm. <laughs> so it was very hot. We, we, in fact, the first night we slept on the beach, and then the crabs came in. We okay. rushed back inside, uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and in those, I don't think there were air conditioning or anything like that. Right. Uh, but anyway, mm. this is beautiful weather, and uh, we're able to uh, enjoy lots of things in the summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, your yeah. uh, the ice creams that have to be had in the on the beaches, etc. Have you been to the beach during this hot weather or not? No, no, no. I'm, I, I'm not uh, beach shaped at the You're moment. You're not beach shaped. <laughs> You're not beach ready. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so who, who is? That's the question. <laughs> so yes, I don't want to expose myself. In, <laughs> in other ways, yes. Anyway, lots going on in the world with it, mm-hmm. uh, and the Mexican lawyer um, and politician Claudia Ruiz Massieu. She says we need politics that not only increase the numbers joining. Sorry, we need policies that not only increase the numbers joining the middle class, but also enable them to stay there. Is it a case of the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer? This is very much the case. I mean, this is one of the, the problems that we have in the kind of societies that we're living in: mm. that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Uh, greater wealth is now being accumulated by the top 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are various statistics that are being uh, spread around. And that's uh, that doesn't seem right. No. Um, recently, um, uh, Bill Gates gave a large amount of his fortune uh, to charity, but still has $100 billion. It's still worth more than $100 billion. 
Yes, there was. What's he going to do with it? I think there was a uh, case of uh, the Duke of Westminster who has a, mm. uh, a value for about ten billion dollars mm. or pounds, and he's had uh, a, a hike in his profits, mm. and they've gone down by hundred and forty-seven million pounds. Mm. Right, one hundred forty-seven versus ten billion is probably a drop in the ocean. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. This uh, is whereas. Whereas taking ten pounds away from the low income, from mm. the national insurance, or from the uh, um, universal credit, universal, yeah. universal mm. credit, it makes big impact on mm. their lives. Yeah. You know, and and yeah. the, the number of people increasing to go to food banks, mm. people with full time jobs. Mm. Um, we'll come to that later as well. Mm. And uh, I remember you sending me something recently where uh, this was highlighted by the fact that uh, companies. Are making shed loads of money, mm. and uh, and despite that, um, the um, uh, those workers uh, are earning a pittance, and they're not being permitted or allowed to have wage rises that uh, are remotely in line with uh, with inflation. And I see there yeah. seems to be a big uh, I, indeed. And, and and we heard it on the debate with mm. the with the uh, Tory party, the next prime minister mm. debate. I didn't see any empathy for the working class people. Oh no, it's about reducing taxes, wasn't it? Uh, exactly, for, it. for yeah. mostly for the rich mm. anyway. You mm. know, the, the, mm. the, the, the lower mm. end of the working population is not going to benefit mm. from it. Mm. The rules of the games are increasingly being stacked against workers, says Joseph E. Steiglitz, American New Keynesian's economist and professor of Columbia University. He says, mm. incomes of the rich. Richest fifth of the household grows by 4.5%, while the poorest fifth of the household suffer a 1.6% fall. Mm. But that is what yeah. the rich getting richer yeah. and the poor getting poorer yeah. means. Yeah. And that's why we, we're getting so much unrest. Uh, and so strikes um, that are taking place, mm. although they're unpleasant to, to bear for most people who want to get to work, mm. uh, especially when they are MT on strike. But... Yeah. Um, uh, there's barristers that want to go on strike. Mm. There, um, I think certain um, health workers that want to go on strike. Yeah, there was an interview with the RMT union leader, mm. and the, uh, the the presenter was more concerned about people not getting to the Commonwealth Games because of the train strike, although mm. that was in factually true. Mm. Uh, but that that is more of a concern than mm. about the concern of these people who mm. are going on strike, mm. not being able to put uh, feed their families yeah. properly or he have a healthy mm. life mm. properly. That was not of concern. Mm. Uh, it, this is the state of the world mm. we live in. Uh, and the underlying pro issue, I think, is that the, the compassion is not there as it ought to be, mm. or to the extent it ought, it's ought to be. And this is uh, the issue that we would have, I think, from an Islamic point of view, where uh, Islam talks about forbidding or uh, banning interest, but promoting charity, mm. you know, compassion. Mm. So if we have more compassion, then this kind of uh, imbalance would perhaps not exist. Democracy um, is... Uh, the imported democracy, so mm. to, so to speak, they, they claim so much about democracy, about freedom of speech, mm. but what they don't tell you about it is that the other end of the scale, where more people are suffering, if you go to America, you certainly see the wealth, mm. but I tell you what, you mm. see poverty hitting you in the face as mm -hmm. well, and that to me was something very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. What, in the ghettos and... 
Yes, in the ghettos particularly. Uh-huh. I think the worst ghetto that I've ever seen in my life, uh-huh. I've been to Russia, I've been to other countries, I thought the worst ghetto that I ever saw was the drive between New York to Jersey. Uh-huh. On the way, I saw a ghetto which was several miles long, and I, I don't think I could ever forget that image. It was so right. horrific. Anyway, mm-hmm. lots to discuss, and Sat might discuss a little bit about ethics as well, about oh, our politicians. Right. Uh, so what have we got in the show in the, uh, this morning? Well, as I will kick off the show with uh, the news review, discussing some of uh, this week's uh, top stories, it appears Tony Blair uh, wants to wage uh, another war of some type, this time against China. And uh, that's going to be fa- uh, followed by Faith in Focus, where we continue uh, to l- review the uh, incredible life of the uh, founder of Islam, uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And uh, what have we got in uh, behind the headlines today? Saf, as you mentioned earlier, will be with us. Uh, he's, uh, he'll be here to discuss the economic situation and the potential difficulties we're likely to face, like the soaring cost of living and uh, with our parliament in total disarray. What kind of leaders have we got? Are they worthy to lead us? Uh, so Saf will give us uh, his analysis of what he thinks is in store for us all. Mm. Have they got any empathy? That's, that's the mm. question, isn't it, is what you're asking. Yeah. Uh, have we got anything on the community news today? Yes, we we are uh, discussing uh, international ministerial conference on freedom of religion uh, of beliefs that was held last week. So we'll be joined by Martin Wayman, the director of All Faiths Network, uh, who attended the conference, and we'll be accompanied by Tracy Coleman, who uh, organised a fringe event in London around persecution. Indeed, um, so much persecution in the 21st century, who would believe it? Mm. Um, I believe we've got uh, our Indian uh, f- supporter uh, joining us oh, uh, about right. the cricket this morning, and mm-hmm. uh, he will tell us how India are doing mm-hmm. on their tour to England as well, so a mm-hmm. little bit of sports at the end. Thank you, Willie. There's always packed show with lots of interesting news stories, both political, faith-related, and a little bit of sports. Anyone eager to comment or share their views can do so by phoning 0208-687-7878. They can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK, Voice of Islam on Dab Radio, mobile or live stream on Voice of Islam UK, uh, voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. This is the Weekend World Show with us and Ahmadi. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Right, let's move on to our first segment of the show, which is the news review. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views and reviews. Right, uh, I think we might have Azhar joining us. Assalamu alaikum, Azhar. Can you hear us? Uh, not quite there yet. Um, there might be some technical issues. He's on a mobile phone today. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, the, the the first headline, Walid, yep. uh, you, you mentioned a little bit in your intro. Tony Blair urges Western powers to stand up to China's reports. The Guardian. Tony Blair has issued a rallying call to Western nations to come together to develop coherent strategy to counter the rise of China uh, the rise of China as the world's second superpower De- delivering the annual digital lecture on Saturday the former prime minister called for policy towards Beijing of strength plus engagement as he warned the era of western political and economical economic dominance was coming to an end Yes, he said that uh, Western powers needed to increase their defense spending in order to maintain their military superiority 
while extending their soft power by building ties with developing nations. At the same time, they needed urgently to end the craziness in the domestic policies, policies and to restore reason and strategy. Well, I don't disagree with him at the end that, <laughs> that mm. the, the politics at home needs a lot of sorting out uh, and uh, Saf will be discussing quite a bit. But this guy's a warmonger. Uh, you think? <laughs> you <laughs> think so? Well, oh, he's uh, talking about, yeah. uh, you know, um, spending in order to maintain the military superiority. What is that? That is a clear message that we need to mm. be ready to fight a war, and that's all he wants. But why aren't they talking about, uh, f you know, fighting uh, economical crisis, mm. reducing wars, and helping mm. the poor? Because might matters, doesn't it? Might means that you've got you can have your way, right or wrong. Bullying, in other R words. Yes. So he wants to preserve the the superiority of the West mm. in uh, in international relations. Which, All right. it, which, it, which it maintains at the moment. Which it maintains, right? Mm. And, and they're, f they're in fear of that. Mm. But let's see what Azhar is saying. Azhar, assalamu alaikum. Uh, Azhar, uh, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you clearly. I hope you can hear me. I can now. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining. I know you're, you've got a busy day and you're out and about uh, enjoying a, a seniors organized uh, event today. Um as we were just yeah. talking about this uh, news uh, from Tony Blair, he gave a lecture uh, at the Ditchley lecture, the annual Ditchley lecture, where he calls that uh, th these are his words: the former prime minister called for a policy towards Beijing of strength plus engagement, as he warned the era of Western political and economic dominance is coming to an end. So the Western dominance is coming to an end. So therefore, he says, Western powers need to increase their defense spending in order to maintain their military superiority uh, and continue and extend the soft power by building ties with developing nations. So he's calling uh, China out here as a second superpower and we must defend ourselves. What do you say to uh, what uh, Tony Blair has to say on this? Well, uh, from my uh, point of view, this is uh, quite alarming, actually, because the world is facing such economic chaos. Uh, we've seen what is happening in countries like Sri Lanka, Pakistan, parts of India, and parts of Africa are going to get worse because of the economic crisis and the commodity prices going up. So we need an absolute commitment from all uh, governments, especially Western governments, because they are quite affluent, mm. uh, to invest in these things and not in war. As far as war and weapons is concerned, I think the world has had enough, especially in the Middle East, and the build-up of tensions in uh, the South China Sea. This is absolutely destabilizing the world uh, uh, good economic order which we want to see and you know the West has to invest heavily in countries like Sri Lanka, Pakistan, uh, Yemen uh, you know the situation in Yemen and Afghanistan is very dire for the world and uh, parts of Africa as well but if we can just concentrate on Yemen and Afghanistan so why has not somebody called for absolute great uh, massive investment in these countries where there's you know it's not only hunger in mm. Sri Lanka at the moment 
there's hunger in Pakistan, there's hunger, but not famine. But in countries like Yemen and Afghanistan and a few countries in Africa as well, for example, Mali, Sudan, uh, Djibouti, uh, Burkina Faso, there is famine. Mm. So this is very serious for the world. And they have to pull away from NATO expanding everywhere and spending so much. You know, they are committing more to defense spend rather than uh, on humanitarian causes. So this is uh, very alarming from uh, well, my perspective in any way. Mm. I mean, you you make a valid point is what me and Willie were discussing earlier about the rich getting rich and the poor getting poorer. There's a duty for the rich nations to help those who are underprivileged. It's, it's part of what keeps a balanced world. And when uh, yes. people fight for their own causes and not for others uh, who are in, in a weaker position, then we're going to have trouble, are we not? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the, this is absolutely correct. So obviously there's a, uh, there's a duty on, on the West, by the West, I mean, you know, Western Europe, and uh, North America and uh, Russia and China as well, because these are very affluent countries, Japan. Uh, they have to invest. And everyone knows, you know, the economists know that even from a selfish angle, if the West invests in these poorer countries, then the, uh, you know, the base, the economic base of the world is raised. And in fact, it will benefit the West, you know, if you if you want to take a selfish point of view, because their markets will become increased in these poorer countries. The poorer countries mm. will have greater capacity to invest in computers and uh, harvesters and farm equipment and office equipment and industrial investment. So there will be a great demand for uh, Western technology in these poorer countries once investment is done. So I think they're policy is very short-sighted and unfortunately they do know about it because this is what economists have been saying for decades. Mm. Uh, a lot of response on Twitter about his speech. Uh, a certain Arno Bertrand says, Tony Blair has an unparalleled capacity to get everything wrong. His solution, more military spending, doubling down on blocks of with the Western uh, with the Western one led by America, more propaganda in developing countries, more lecturing on Western values. And another Mr. Chen Weihu, uh, which is Chinese, says, uh, commenting on uh, what Bernard said, he said, looks like more color revolution, coup regime change, and more Iraq war in search of WMD, obviously being cynical. Uh, there's not much uh, appetite for Blaise's comments here because uh, after Iraq war, he doesn't seem to have much credit. He's, he's wanting uh, for war crimes, really, by many, but uh, being defended by the Western nations who propped him up. Uh, well, I think uh, that is largely correct. Uh, that is exactly my point of view as well, that uh, unfortunately Mr. Blair is uh, forever tarnished by, uh, you know, it wasn't uh, a very a small mistake. It was deliberate uh, backing up of uh, President Bush's uh, regime change agenda, which led to catastrophe in not only Iraq, but the rest of the Middle East. And he was also, uh, Mr. Blair, called for a strike on Iran. Hmm. Uh, I don't know what his position is now, but just before the 
Iran Accord was signed, uh, you know, which was later um, torn up by uh, President Trump. Uh, so I'm afraid this is how Western nations are acting. And as far as your criticism of or cynicism of uh, Mr. Blair is concerned, you know, I would, you know, I mean, if somebody is tarnished with the Iraq war, which is one of the major wars mm. of the 20th, 21st century, and then he's been calling for a strike on Iraq. You know, we want, even with China, we want peace, friendly relations. Let's have these kind of uh, messages and communiques rather than uh, war and more defense spend, which is just going to lead um, the world up the garden path, especially in the wake of uh, Ukraine war, which is going to cause great uh, harm and economic deprivation for many parts of the world in Asia, Africa and South America. Yeah, in, in fact, the speech was what happens after the uh, the Ukrainian war, and this was his solution to attack China or get ready to attack China almost. I mean, after having not learned his lesson from Iraq, where everything became more destabilized than ever, uh, I don't know how Mr. Blair thinks that uh, the solution uh, to resolving world issues is fighting more wars or, or getting armed up to the hilt to defend yourself for your own values at the expense of the values of others or and as you put it not helping those who need the help and to establishing education food water for all these nations medical yes indeed so the world the western world needs to wake up to the deprivation being suffered by what they call the third world or you know the north south divide the North-South divide is extreme in the world we live in. Africa must be helped. Asia, or certain parts of it, uh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and India must be helped. Uh, and this is the message which should go out. And uh, as you say, Mr. Blair is not... Um, I don't know why they are asking him for advice when he has been tarnished and... Uh, Certain people, as you know, have been calling uh, for him to be taken off mm. to the ICJ. So, uh, um, <coughs> not sure we should give uh, much credence to what he says. Mm. Uh, that thought. Uh, at the same time, uh, the organization IAAAE, which is the Engineers and Architects Association, working in the third in the developing countries, helping nations. At the behest of the instructions of the spiritual leader, Zamizah Masura, the head of the Amdi Muslim community. Uh, they are actually now uh, starting a project where they are going to develop farming and, and food growth so much so that uh, not only is it going to feed Africa, but they want the wider objective or vision of His Holiness is to feed the Western world, because amidst the wars, the lack of water, food shortage and the rise of the economic state that they're going to be sort of delved into, uh, he is looking into helping the all nations. And should the world leaders not be doing something similar? Well, uh, absolutely correct. So uh, the Caliph of Ahmadiyya Islam, as you know, is an agriculturalist. 
by qualification and by profession. Uh, well, profession before he joined the Jamaat uh, Voluntary Service. So um, he's best placed to lead the world into this field of agricultural development in you know the deprived part of the world. So where we have very good connections, for example, in West Africa, East Africa, mm. hopefully the, this program can take off. Mm-hmm. And as you know, previous initiatives by the Caliph of Ahmadiyyat Islam um, have been very successful. For example, the new eye hospital, which is being set up, the first of its kind in Burkina Faso. Now we have an initiative of technical colleges so that uh, the indigenous people, the Africans who have been suffering so far, um, can learn the basic skills in computers, engineering, um, these kind of practical skills which they will require to develop their countries. And I suppose one can say that the Ahmadiyya movement uh, is involved in nation building. Mm. And uh, so, you know, apart from education, hospitals, school, uh, schools uh, and hospitals and medical centers, so now we, you know, it's nation building on a very wide scale, despite the uh, meager resources of the community. So mm-hmm. it's quite a wonder what is being done by volunteers and, uh, you know, very few paid staff. And uh, I hope the world can learn rather than spend on defence. Uh, I don't think we should call it defence anymore, should we? <laughs> it should be, um, uh, I mean, aggressive. Intentions. Uh, military, uh, indeed, aggressive yeah. military uh, intentions. Yeah. So this okay. is the; these are the two stark contrasts you have. Indeed, uh, I thought we could talk about this more, but uh, let's move on to another story. Uh, ju- uh, the headline is: "We are the fifth largest economy in the world. Why are so many people poor?" Argues John McDonald, the former Shadow Chancellor for Labour. Uh, there are 14.5 million people in poverty in Britain, including 4.3 million children. Two-thirds of those are in households where someone is in work. So despite being in work, there are still two-thirds of the children of, of the poverty-stricken are uh, in poverty. Um, if, if you are in work, even if your company is booming, you have little say whether you will benefit from its profits. If your landlord increases your rent or threatens eviction, or if your mortgage company fo- fails to pass on interest rate cuts, you are largely powerless. What else does it say, really? Well, it says that the prices of the basic goods uh, you need to live on are set by a small group of multinational companies that between them carve up the market and set the prices to profiteer. So it's a statement of the obvious that poverty is caused by the combination of low incomes and high living costs faced by many British people. There's a dire situation going on, Azif, and uh, poverty is uh, something which is knocking on our doors, and we live in one of the richest nations in the country, in in the world. Yes, so uh, this is very much part of the divide. As you know, there was a very severe crisis in 2007-8, which is called the financial crisis, which was mainly caused by the bankers, and the country 
under Gordon Brown then helped out the bankers and the banking community. Mm-hmm. So this is high time that the actual real workers who are suffering in England, for example, uh, we have teachers, we have uh, um, post office staff, we have railway workers, uh, we have nurses. Now they are given in many cases very paltry pay rises despite the fact that we are going to have and we already have very high inflation at the moment it's uh, knocking on nine percent and uh, uh, predicted to go up so we have to think very carefully who are the real workers who deserve all the uh, you know who deserve some realistic pay rises and why is it that the finance sector mm. is so highly paid and, you know, they only do a, a, a seven-hour shift anyway in these um, monolithic uh, institutions they have in the city. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, this capitalist society which we live in uh, is rewarding some professions and a lot of the real professions are suffering. You know, by real, I mean teachers, nurses, railway staff, post office workers, soldiers, policemen. So I'm afraid uh, it's about time the country helped them rather than just the banking fraternity, mm. uh, you know, which was done back in 2007 mm-hmm. and eight. You know, in 2007 and eight, sorry, yeah. I beg your pardon, Arthur, you were about to say something. No, no, I was going to say, Talking of bankers, according to Carol Ruth, a former investment banker uh, in America, uh, she says, as the world increases the number of billionaires worldwide, sorry, as the world increases, the number of billionaires worldwide increases and extreme poverty shrinks. So what she's arguing, which is a typical right-wing thought, I would have thought, that as people get richer, the poorer will get better Mm-hmm. In, a, in a better financial state. Mm-hmm. That surely can't be a, a, a reasonable argument, can it? Well, I think this is a typical what we call capitalist uh, mentality mm. where the rich are you know, rewarded, as you say, in the hope that their industries will lift up the bottom rung of society. Uh, the absolute... Uh, uh, distorted nature of the world economy is shown by one fact, if I may say so. Uh, is you know, Mr. Elon Musk, he is uh, quite a wealthy man. Mm. Some say that he, on the same day that Pakistan asked for one billion extra loan from the IMF uh, to help its 220 million population. Mr. Elon Musk, in the same week, or in the same maybe 10 days or so, uh, on his own behalf, uh, bid $44 billion for Twitter. Mm. So, and uh, as you say, there's a rise in billionaires. I don't know what they do with their wealth or where they're going to take it after their death. So this is what the Holy Quran tells us, that... Uh, we must be careful of taqwa. We should fear that we are all going to die one day. And we have only the good works and our faith uh, 
uh, will will help us in the life hereafter. You know, this is the message of Ahmadiyat Islam of the of Islam and Ahmadiyat Islam in particular is that one should look forward. You should be looking very carefully to what you are going to send for the morrow, mm. which means the life hereafter. So it's not just greed, 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 as you have been, you know, discussing in your program, whether it's uh, the West uh, spending too much on defence, or whether it's uh, people suffering in England, or all over the world in Sri Lanka, Pakistan, in Djibouti, large parts of Africa. So it's not just spend, spend, spend and enjoy your life. It is helping the poor, helping the needy, so that you can give a good account of yourself at the end of your days. Indeed, I think that's a good message to end with. That uh, it's not what you it's, it's what you do with your wealth, which is more important, and how you can alleviate and help others rather than accumulate it for yourself, which is what Islam actually teaches. It doesn't stop you from creating wealth, but it's what you do with it, and helping others is certainly the key factor of it. And then the Muslim community, in many ways, leads this uh, through their works that they do. Um, although there are many charitable organizations who also do very good work as well. Azza, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your views. Thank you very much. As-salamu alaykum. Wa alaykum Have a good day at your, at, at your convention today. Yes, indeed. Thank, thank you very much. Right, Malit, uh, mm -hmm. that was as on, uh, <coughs> on our news review, uh, mm -hmm. outlining some of the key stories. Uh, some very important uh, points raised there. Yep. Uh, well, uh, time waits for no one, and we have faith in focus now, uh, continuing our serialization of the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad, peace and peace be upon him. Uh, Walid, you've been laying down the key historical incidents, incidents around his life, mm -hmm. and in the last program we were discussing the treatment of those who failed to obey the Holy Prophet's instruction to join him on the expedition to Tabuk. Um, not the first time that some people had... Uh, not uh, obeyed. Mm -hmm. uh, we will now f examine the fate of those who didn't obey the Holy Prophet for no valid reason. So remind us what happened to those who did not join the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, on this expedition. Was any action taken against them? Well, uh, you'd expect some action to be taken. Indeed. Um, so uh, there were some who had legitimate reasons not to go and uh, had got permission beforehand. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are some who wanted to go but were not allowed to go. Uh, mentioned before, Hazrat Ali was one of them uh, who wanted to go, but he was specifically uh, left behind because the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, wanted him to take care of uh, of the family. Um, but there are others. It is said 80 uh, of them that had stayed behind for apparently no legitimate reason. And it is related that the Holy Prophet, when he returned uh, from Tabuk, it was in the morning, uh, one of the first acts he did, and this was his normal practice, when he returned from an ex expedition, he would go to the mosque first and offer two rakats uh, of prayer and then sit with his companions. And at this stage, uh, on the morning that he came back, uh, these 80 companions, one by one, uh, went to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, offered their reason as to why they were not able to join him uh, on the expedition. Allah knows whether their excuses were valid or not, but the Holy Prophet, it's important, did not challenge them. Uh, he did not initiate any elaborate uh, investigations to find out if what was being said was true. Um, and he just accepted what they were saying at face value and left the matter to, to God Almighty. 
Um, but he did uh, take uh, their bath, their pledge of allegiance again, and prayed for them. But um, uh, uh, as you may have uh, guessed, there were some, uh, and three in particular, that admitted that they had uh, not gone, uh, and they had no legitimate reasons for not going. Mm. And uh, these were uh, then punished. Um, one of them uh, was Kabin Malik. And his account is related by his son and is preserved in Bukhari. Bukhari, as, you kn- as we all know, is um, a very authenticated, uh, very reliable uh, source that we have. So his account is very interesting as to what uh, happened with him. Right. So tell us what, uh, what does Kaab bin Malik say? Well, he says that at first, uh, when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, announced that he wanted all able men to accompany him on this expedition, he knew he would uh, have to go, but uh, kept on making excuses for himself. I mean, I think we can identify with the way he was procrastinating. He said, kept on putting it off. Mm, mm. He said, okay, I... Undecisive. <laughs> I know I have to go. Yeah, mm. all right. Um, and, uh, okay, I, I'm done. I know I have to make pre- preparations, but I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. Until the time came when the... Oh, probably uh, hoping that the matter wouldn't need to come because yes. it might not happen. So, therefore, by delaying it, he could avoid it. Absolutely. You know, this is the kind of thing that we, we sometimes face mm. when... Uh, we have something important to do and we know we should do it, yeah. but we try and put it, putting it off. So this is the kind of uh, uh, situation he was in that uh, he knew he had to go. And the other thing that he also says in his account is that at, at this time, uh, it, he happened to be quite um, um, well positioned in the sense that he said that um, I had two camels, all right, whereas I didn't used to be you know, that rich. Uh, I was fairly well off, all right? Didn't used to be that well off. Mm-hmm. There was no, and I wasn't feeling unwell or anything like that. I was healthy. So there was no reason why I shouldn't shouldn't go. But then I kept on putting it off. And uh, he said that until uh, the prophet left. And then he said, okay, fine. Okay, what I'll do is I'll, I'll get ready tomorrow, catch, catch up with them and join them. And then tomorrow came and then the day after came and we're still there. And he said, then he, you know, it was too late. And uh, he said that he felt very uncomfortable, the fact that he had done this. And uh, when he went out uh, to the market or to the city, mixing with other people, and he found that uh, the only people that were left there, uh, the adult males, were hypocrites of one who were known to be uh, weak of faith. Mm. And he felt that, he was now among them, yeah. and that was very uncomfortable for him. And with Kavid Malik, it also needs to be said, is that he was a very dedicated companion of the Holy Prophet, peace be right. upon him. And he was among those uh, uh, people, um, Medanite uh, citizens, mm-hmm. uh, um, who actually went to Aqaba in order to assure the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. This is before migration. He was among those to assure the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that he went, if he came over to Medina and migrated, then they would be uh, ones who would offer him protection and fight for him. So he was among them. So he was among the lead companions. Mm. Um, so the fact that he didn't go was out of character. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that, mm. uh, he, that was expected of him. So would that be the reason why when, when he was confronted 
uh, he, rather than lying or making other excuses, he admitted that why he mm, This lying. is also interesting. You know, mm. the thing is that there was, uh, and his, his um, account is very interesting in that it is very honest and candid, you know, mm. and you can you can work out what his thinking is. And he says that it did cross his mind. Um, but he said that he went to a, a relative. I mean, the, it's an easy way, easy get out of jail card, really, isn't it, to lie. Uh, and he said that he consulted a relative on this, and the relative was quite wise. He said that, uh, um, you know, whatever happens, do not rely on falsehood. You know, go and tell the truth. You know, something that our politicians would, uh, some politicians were alleged of uh, certain misdemeanors in this area mm. about not being honest could learn from. But anyway, Cobb resisted um, uh, making any stories and any excuses. Um, as you would expect all companions of the Holy Prophet because they had been raised to such a level by the by the um, um, uh, treatment of the Holy Prophet, by the education of the Holy Prophet. And he decided to stick to uh, honesty and remain firm to the truth. Uh, and he says that um, when uh, other people were uh, approaching the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. He was also in line, and when he came across, uh, he greeted the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. The Holy Prophet returned his greeting, but he could see in his face, he said, I detected that he was not happy with mm. me. He was angry. Mm. Uh, and uh, he uh, and the Holy Prophet asked him, you know, why didn't you go? And Cobb said, you know, I laid you know, everything bare. Uh, I said that... Uh, uh, if I tell you a lie uh, to seek your favor, uh, Allah will definitely make you angry with me in the near future through some other way. So I'm not going to lie. Uh, and uh, if I do tell you the truth, though you'll get angry uh, with me because of it, I hope that Allah will forgive me. So this is what he said to the Holy Prophet. And um, so the cop said that I've got no excuse. There was no reason. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, it wasn't because anybody was sick in my family. I was well enough. Yeah. Um, I had, uh, you know, resources. No reason. So the Holy Prophet acknowledges uh, truthfulness and told him to wait his punishment. And apparently there were two others. And they they mentioned in history. One is Murara uh, bin al-Rabi and the other one is uh, Hilal bin Umayya. They were also in the same position. Mm. They did not lie. They said, we have no excuses. For being honest, the conscience was clear. Um, sometimes you carry a heavy burden by mm. not being truthful to yourself. So they were in that position. Were they ready to take the punishment? What was the punishment meted to them? Well, he says uh, the punishment was simply that the Holy Prophet told the rest uh, of the community not to talk to us. That's basically it. All right. Oh, right. So it is. Um, it, it appears uh, quite innocuous, but the results led to you know, more suffering that may appear. Um, so not to be able to converse with anyone uh, was difficult to bear. You know, you, he, he says he went along uh, feeling like a, like a pariah, like an outcast, uh, the lowest of the law. And uh, this lasted for 50 days. Uh, and what is interesting is the standard of obedience of the masses to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Once, once the Holy Prophet had issued this instruction, everyone then uh, conformed to it. Mm. They would not uh, speak to him uh, or interact with him. It wasn't an e economic boycott. It doesn't mean that they didn't. Uh, he wasn't able to uh, trade, uh, buy stuff. That's a different matter. But no one was talking to him. 
So it isn't the same kind of boycott that the Muslims suffered uh, during their time in, in Mecca right. when uh, anything... Anything, no, no interaction at all yes. was, was, was meted out to yeah. the Muslims, yeah. So this was, uh, you know, uh, very um, ha- hard for... Uh, Kaab himself says that it was very hard for him to bear. And he, reco- he records how miserable he felt. He relates how he would greet the Holy Prophet mm. uh, and wonder whether he had even quietly returned my greeting, uh, straining to hear an answer and w- wondering whether he may have done so quietly, whether his lips moved, mm. maybe mm. he did it quietly. So, so you, can, right. you can, you know, you can in his account, you can see the pain, yes, the, yes. The, the anguish he's going through. And he says that... Um, he went to his best friend's house, Bukhtada uh, was his name, and he said, uh, you know, he would not respond uh, to his greeting. And uh, he said, despite, you know, my attempts to speak to him, he would say, no, uh, he would not uh, He would not respond. And he says, I came away very distressed, and I was, I was weeping when he came away. He then says that, um, and this is another issue, that during this time, uh, a Christian, uh, a, f- a farmer, uh, handed him a letter from the king of Hassan, so some neighboring time, who effectively said to him, look, we know that you're being uh, dealt with this in this way. Uh, come over to us, you know, <laughs> we will we will look after you. You know, Oppos- don't worry, come over to us. Opportunity. Uh, yeah, <laughs> come on. And, uh, but Kabas, you know, as mentioned, he was a dedicated, devoted companion. Mm. You know, he wasn't not going to take this kind of invitation seriously. He said, I, I, I took the letter and I just burnt it. Uh, and the punishment did ca- get get tougher. He, they were even not allowed to uh, interact with their wives. So that was uh, also that made also life uh, extremely difficult for wow. them. Did, did this con- <laughs> was there any forgiveness on this matter? If so, what happened? Yes. So there was, of course, forgiveness, and this was through a verse of the Holy Quran. And uh, here, uh, in Kaab's account, we told that on the morning of the fiftieth day. Kaab says that he offered his further prayers, sitting, he was sitting on a roof of one of the housings, feeling very sorry for himself, feeling, and these are important words, as if his soul uh, was straightened, uh, and even the earth seemed narrow uh, for him for all its spaciousness. Uh, and this description is important because it is the way that the Holy Quran described the condition, the condition of the three who had been uh, in, um, inflicted with this punishment. And he says that he heard a voice then uh, from afar, um, O Kaab bin Malik, be happy. <coughs> and he understood exactly what that meant. And he says he fell down in prostration before Allah, realizing what relief had come. Uh, that relief had come. And the Holy Prophet had announced, apparently, the acceptance of the repentance mm. by Allah. And uh, um, this is something that he announced immediately after after Fajr prayer. And this was what was being communicated to Kaab. And Kaab end, uh, added, when I greeted the Holy Prophets, uh, when I greeted Allah's, uh, Allah's messenger, he says, uh, his face, the face of the Holy Prophet, was bright with joy. So you can see... Uh, from here, um, also an element of compassion of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. He must have also prayed for Kaab and these people, for their suffering. Um, imposing a punishment is not something that he uh, rejoiced in, but it is something that uh, disobedience uh, meant had to take place. Um, so the fact that when he had been forgiven by God Almighty brought great joy to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And the Holy Prophet uh, said to Kaab, be happy, 
uh, with the best day that you have got ever since your mother uh, uh, delivered you uh, or gave birth to you. And Kaab added, I said to the Holy Prophet, is this forgiveness from you or from Allah? So mm. he wanted that assurance. He said, no, it is from Allah. And uh, then um, he said that whenever uh, the Prophet of Allah became happy, his face would shine as if it were a piece of moon. And we all knew that characteristic of him. When I sat before him, I said, O oh Allah's Messenger, uh, because of the acceptance of my repentance, I will give up all my wealth as, um, as alms, as charity for the sake of Allah and his, and his Messenger. And uh, the Holy Prophet said, keep some of your wealth that is, as it is better for you. So he didn't accept all of the wealth that he was donating um, uh, to, to the cause. And one of the lessons here was that um, Kaab remained firm to the truth and was willing to suffer the consequences mm. rather than commit a lie. And this was acknowledged in the Holy Quran, which says, very Allah has forgiven the uh, Muhajirin, uh, the emigrants, uh, and be with those who are true uh, in word and deed. Um, so this is in uh, chapter 9, Surah Tawbah, and Kaab says, by Allah, Allah has never bestowed upon me, apart from his guiding me to Islam, a greater blessing than the fact that I did not tell a lie uh, to Allah's messenger, which would have caused me to perish as those who have told a lie perished. For Allah described those who told lies with the worst description he ever attributed to anybody else. So, and this is also found in uh, in chapter um, chapter 9, Surah Tawbah, about how um, condemned those people who uh, uh, um, take refuge in uh, falsehood. Mm. You mentioned Surah Tawbah there. It's unique that it is the only chapter of the Holy Quran that does not begin with Bismillah. Why, yes. why would that be? This is interesting. Um, um, this uh, whole episode of Tabu coming up, some two-thirds of the surah relates to this. And uh, commentators have um, discussed this. Some have suggested that this is not a separate surah, this chapter 9, Surah Tawbah but part of the preceding surah, Surah Anfal, which deals with the law, with a similar subject. And uh, Hazrat Osman, the third caliph of Islam, is reported to have said that this was one of the last surahs to be revealed, and we were not sure where it went. So we put it together with Surah Anfal, owing to the su- subject matter being uh, being similar. This, this means uh, there were not 114, but 113 chapters of the Holy Quran. But this view is very much a minority view. The majority uh, understanding is, uh, and I remember uh, the fourth caliph, Zamir Atayr Ahmed, also uh, um, uh, mentioning this. He said that uh, there's no Bismillah in Surah Toba because of the nature of the subject matter. Mm, mm. That is very harsh. Yeah. So Bismillah is the very tough. Yeah. Um, yeah. Circumstances, isn't it? And yeah. why, why, why I want to mention it because I have now worked out, you know, why, on what he was basing this, this, uh, this, uh, this understanding from, mm. um, because we um, in um, when Hazrat Ali was asked this, uh, Hazrat Ali um, say, said that uh, this surah. Uh, where Allah uh, is is without Bismillah because it is one where Allah cuts off his ties with the pagan. It is not befitting that it begins with his mercy. 
And indeed, the, the very first word of the surah means to be completely cut, cut off. So when such harsh words are being mentioned and some such um, disapproval mm. of God Almighty is being uh, being uh, mentioned, then to have it begin with uh, an assertion of His mercy is not appropriate. Um, so this is why. And okay. uh, the other the other point that I think we we can draw from this, and this is also. Uh, a difference that exists between how we count the verses of the Holy Quran and how s- many other Muslims count of the verses of the Holy Quran, they don't include uh, Bismillah in their count. That's right. So Correct. it's the second verse, which is the first verse. Mm. But this also shows that Bismillah was revealed at the beginning of every every exactly. surah, and yeah. therefore should be counted. Yeah. Uh, and when it wasn't revealed, like in Surah Toba, then it doesn't exist. Mm. I so can't understand the logic that it's it's. It's there in every mm. Quran, mm. and it's not counted yeah. by some. Uh, yeah. That's preventing yeah. better, but no more than that. Anyway, coming back to uh, this, ish, this incident, on returning from the book, the Holy Prophet continued to receive delegations from other tribes. Mm. Right, and yeah. people were coming to him. Among them was uh, was one by the people of Taif. Uh, why was this a significant uh, well, story? Taif was a citadel of idolatry. And they had resisted uh, uh, idol worship. They resisted Mm. the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. After the conquest of Makkah, it was the Taif and the surrounding tribes, the Hawazin, that actually rose uh, to um, stand against the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. We had the Battle of Hunan. And then uh, after that, the Holy Prophet tried to uh, siege to the city. Uh, The city was well uh, defended. And so the uh, the siege was abandoned, and the Holy Prophet, on on abandoning the siege, said that I will pray for these people then, and then uh, left them. So some two years later, um, no, in fact a few months later, uh, one of their uh, um, uh, people, uh, his name was Urwa bin Masood, he uh, met the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, when he was returning from Taif, and accepted Islam. And uh, he said that he would go to Taif and uh, preach to the people there and uh, bring them to, uh, to, uh, to Islam. But unfortunately, his attempt failed when he did uh, go back to his uh, city and uh, did what he had said that he would to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. He was attacked and he was murdered. Um, so these uh, people from Taif are very staunch disbelievers. And um, when they have now come to accept Islam, it is a big uh, turnaround, mm. you know. So it is something quite, uh, um, quite remarkable. Yeah. And what were the conditions of people of Taif before they said they could accept Islam? Well, this is going to be. I mean, uh, when I was going through this, it made me ch- chuckle as to what they, <laughs> what they were asking for. Yeah. They said we will, ar- we will accept uh, Islam. Um, if uh, you let us uh, retain our idols, retain our <laughs> idols. So <laughs> please, let us uh, uh, retain our idols. And the cake and eat it. As yes. Well. <laughs> um, and so the, the Holy Prophet uh, said no. He said, okay, then can we have them uh, there for three years? The Holy Prophet said no again. <laughs> and he said that, what about, um, you know, if uh, we have them for a year or maybe three months? Mm. So the Holy Prophet said, no, you, know, you cannot have Islam sitting side by side so with idol worship. worship. You know, this is not on. So eventually they they agreed. 
And then they said that we would not want anybody else to break our idols. The Holy Prophet then said, okay, we'll, I'll provide you somebody who will do it for you mm -hmm. uh, to destroy your idols. And um, then they said that uh, prayer, you know, it's going to be difficult for us to pray five times a day. Please let us off prayer. So the Holy Prophet said, no, the, uh, he said that without Salat there is no good accept this duty even if it be disgraceful and humiliating so you have to accept it and he also said there's no good in a religion that has no salat so he was very adamant so on these principles the holy prophet was mm. not giving in at all an inch and then Certainly um, not on those principles no no no, no they were essential to islam yeah. <laughs> but, they, but there was more i mean these uh, people on time really were uh, t uh, chancing they yeah. were uh, chancing uh, you know and uh, they said, you know, they would listen, they were, while they were there, they were in the mosque, they were listening to the Holy Quran. And after a while they said, look, can you also allow us adultery? You know, we want to have <laughs> <laughs> some bit of adultery, some fun. And okay, also allow us some wine as well. Uh, okay. So again, that was denied. All right. Was so, it Islam they were accepting? <laughs> <laughs> we become Muslims, but let us commit adultery, yeah. let us drink wine, let us not pray. And uh, let us retain our idols. So on all these counts, the Holy Prophet uh, denied them. And then uh, he also trained somebody to educate them when they went back. And uh, we will talk about that when we uh, discuss this in the next edition. We say this with a bit of laughter, but shockingly, we still see Muslims in that capacity. Mm. Mm. <laughs> they drink, they fornicate, yes. they commit adultery and all these things. Anyway, we've got the 11 o'clock news and we'll come back with behind the headlines. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Just been called for Donald the Trump. The decision taken to join the common market has been the reversed. should call a general election. Order. Weekend World. Questions to the Prime Minister. Behind the headlines. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Welcome back to the Weekend World Show with Asim Ahmadi. Uh, we are, uh, the time now is 11.03. Um, in chapter 4, verse 59, Allah Almighty says this. Inna Allah ya'murukum an tu'addu al-amanati ila ahliha wa idha hakamtum bayna al-nasi an tahkumu bil-adl Verily Allah commands to sorry verily Allah commands you to make over the trust to those entitled to them and that when you judge between men you judge with justice. And surely excellent is that which Allah admonishes you. Allah is all hearing, all seeing. I believe uh, the, U the UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson has resigned as head of the Conservative Party and he, and he will step down following a series of scandals and a slew of cabinet resignations. Uh, his downfall was eventually brought down about uh, after MPs concluded that Boris Johnson and his immediate personal advisory team lied about his foreknowledge of complaints about an admitted sexual predator 
whom Johnson had made his deputy chief with, namely Christopher Pincher, uh, which uh, were initially denied. Mm -hmm. Yes, the unfolding scandal led to a record number of resignations in one day, uh, leading to the Prime Minister to resign, albeit protracted, and at times it was reported as being undignified. And as you said, joining us this morning to discuss this, uh, what sort of leaders do we have and are they fit to lead us, is Saf Hamdi. Yes, Saf is an investment director at GWM and ardently keeps abreast about, uh, about the political and financial situation of the nation and a regular contributor to our show. We're always happy to have him back. Good morning. Asalaamu Alaikum, Saf. Wa Alaikum Asalaam. How are you, gentlemen? Right? Very well, Saf. Uh, I mean, you're always ke always keeping a keen eye on the behaviours of our MPs and uh, and what they get on to. I often get uh, messages from you about certain MPs, this and the other. Um, <laughs> they, have, they have kept him busy recently, haven't they? They've kept him very busy. <laughs> That's what I haven't heard from him. <laughs> but... <laughs> But I was I was watching the new uh, the 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 debate for the new PM on Friday. Uh, the key question asked, in fact, it was the most popular question according to Christian Murthy, uh, was being asked by the audience, and they were all floating voters. Uh, how can you trust? Uh, how can we trust you anymore? Uh, and that was particularly addressed to the five candidates. Tell you the truth, I didn't trust any of the answers. That they gave. <laughs> but but how have we reached to this point? You know that, that we can't even trust our MPs. It's it's what happens in developing countries where we know the politicians are corrupt. Look at Pakistan. Look at Nigeria. Look at any other developing countries. Sri Lanka. What's happening there? You can't trust yeah. those MPs. And and we are saying the same about our MPs in Britain. We're one of the most developed countries and most of the, law, uh, the uh, parliaments around the world are based on, on, on what we have set up here. Yeah, uh, no, thank you very much for having me, gentlemen, this morning. It was, um, uh, it was an introduction that I can't really beat. It's, um, uh, I, think, I think fair in every, uh, in every way you, you put it. Mm. Look, there's, a, there's an element, you know, you try and be neutral about these, um, uh, these kinds of issues, but the reality was before he even came to power, I think uh, many people were sort of. Uh, I, I think they were they were, they were highly crit critical of him. <laughs> they mm. were they they were querying his uh, his ability, uh, uh, not just a, as a PM, but uh, his ability to sort of be able to be. Uh, well, his ability to be fruitful with the truth was always known, mm. and that, did that really make him um, a, a credible leader? And what we found was, unfortunately, in a really short space of time. Remember, this this guy also gave you one of the biggest um, uh, majorities from a conservative government. Um, you know, definitely in my lifetime, I'm pretty sure in many other lifetimes. I think he's sort of knocking on the door of Margaret Thatcher in in that respect. But uh, reality was, he he had this huge um, majority and somehow he he really managed to completely degenerate uh, his his, uh, his position I mean you know you had not just I mean not just this Chris Pincher thing I mean this was really the straw that broke the camel back I think mm. that even on its in its own he might have been able to uh, uh, to manage it um, however you had you know we've had Partygate I think that sort of started off um, uh, you know back in last November time uh, we started really picking up speed. You had, you know, you've had the lies about the Northern Ireland Protocol, 
where he sort of said to, uh, you know, like to a room full of people that there will be no forms, you know, you can give it to me and I'll put it, you know, like I'll tell you where to put it. You know, we already had a land border already in place. Um, you know, then you've also had little other issues like his interactions with, you know, like Russian, uh, you know, like w w with high powered Russian KGB agents in London. I mean, the whole thing sort of one one thing after another. And it was this drip feed, which which really led to this uh, le led to this point. The, the issue became was really was even through all of this, I think you had a party that sort of backed him because he was seen as an electoral asset. You know, he, he was he was seen as a winner. Um, and unfortunately, I think we, we, we saw that even, for example, in the U.S., it was a similar kind of uh, uh, we've seen democracy sort of following in the same sort of light. Mm. But, uh, but, but, you know, being a winner makes sense. But really, it was and I have to say on this part, I think it wasn't really the actual underlying issues that really caused MPs to move away from him. I think it was actually the fact that he, he became an, uh, not so much an asset, but he, became, he was beginning to look like a liability. Mm. That, but, that's when the knife started but coming But doesn't out. this say a lot more about the electorate, the, 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 the party, the people who follow or people who elect, uh, about knowing the background, knowing uh, what he says has to be sort of taken with a pinch of salt, uh, what he gets on, what the comments he makes about Muslims looking like letterbox and terror and all these sort of things, that didn't matter to any of them. They voted him in with large numbers just because on the basis of Brexit, it appears. And that was the end all and be all. And um, so so what hope have we got uh, with if we got the electorate who bases it on these values and not the wider values that you have spoken of? I, I, look, and I think I agree with you. I, I, I'm not really sure what you do with that nowadays. I mean, um, at the, he, you know, he did. I think, you know, no matter how much was pointed out that a lot of the things that he was saying were were not credible, he, he is, he was and still is, I, I still maintain he probably will be a, a great campaigner. Um, you know, he, he can campaign. He can sort of push a story forward. Unfortunately, is when it actually comes to executing, that um, uh, uh, those things it, it becomes impossible because they are really I mean you know in, in, in his particular case much of what he was saying was built on uh, untruths and um, we do see that unfortunately it starts going into a, you know when you have to keep on covering up there comes a point where you just can't carry on anymore and you know I think that's where the point that he had reached um, but, but essentially, he still has a problem with Brexit, for example, as well. I mean, you know, that does. has a big yeah. one. Well, he's eager to get in here. <laughs> but, Seth, I mean, his defenders, Boris's defenders would say, we're making a big fuss about honesty and trust. I mean, are they really that important? I mean, all politicians are flawed. And the, uh, the asset or the good thing about uh, Boris Johnson was that he got the big decisions right. He got us through Brexit. Uh, he, we had the vaccine rollout. So the big decisions is something he got right, and therefore we should have stuck with him. What do you say to that? So what what well, were they saying? There's it's integrity honesty, rather yeah. than ele it's not integrity, but but, but electability. Stability. Not electability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting job, getting things done. Okay. Yeah, okay. but I mean, again, when you when you look back on it, I think the qu the query also became with him was I think he was also struggling to defend that because. What had he got done? You know, um, uh, the whole idea of getting Brexit done um, was there, and Brexit has got done only in a superficial sense because you still have a problem with North Northern Ireland. Mm. There is still big concerns about um, 
you know, the the uh, the relationship between Europe and us in comparison to Northern Ireland in general. Um, nothing's really been resolved. I think you had, you know, like you had a, uh, the, the head of the agricultural services saying Brexit is not done. Brexit hasn't even started hmm. uh, for them. You know, they, they're still sort of struggling. And I think you had, you know, like big bands of people that are beginning to sort of, uh, that, that are getting a little bit fed up with that rhetoric that anything got done. Hmm. Then you've also had, for example, the vaccine, uh, the, the vaccine rollout. Uh, you know, this was another big sort of um, win and positive that they like to push out. The reality is, you know, in terms of where the vaccine uh, rollout came, uh, got to, was actually we were falling behind other European nations at one point. Yes, we were first out of the blocks, that's fine. Um, but we also had the highest uh, death rate uh, from, for, from most people for a while. So, I mean, nothing that you can really say pointed to uh, positivity. I think the big issue that they had, and I think the problem that he had with the electorate ultimately, was that actually if you look at it, the, um, uh, there was one, one particular point was obviously Partygate was one, you know, having the party. The other thing was all of this money that went onto this track and trace system, which went missing. You know, we were talking about 40 to 50 billion pounds that someone that suddenly went into thin air. And I think that's a big problem for him. And I, I don't think that they really, I think they underestimated um, how much the electorate would take that into consideration. And um, there's still a lot of questions to be answered about that. Well, the, the, the rollout of the vaccination, most of the credit goes to the NHS. The government Absolutely. was just, was, was there to you know, apply, which any government would have, but without the NHS, which they're underfunding, which they're trying to get rid of and try to make it into a private organization. In fact, they're taking credit for where, where credit is not due, in, mm-hmm. my, in my view. Uh, Absolutely. I, I think this is the other issue. I think, you know, where, um, I think it's been seen by the electorate that they are beginning to take, every, every positivity they seem to want to take um, credit for and all of the negativity it keeps on being somebody else's fault mm. I think that's beginning not to cut through you know mm. like that in, in the past they could sort of be able to bumble through it but now they're really struggling to do that but, but is it I, I listen to Tory voters the staunch Tory voters and they bite yeah. they bite you know, line hook and sinker the, the whole shebang they, they take everything they take at value even you know the, the, the furlough Britain wasn't the first one to introduce it or, or put it in place. That system was already there, but other countries yeah. were already... In, Italy had already started it uh, because they were hit first. China had already put it in place. So Britain weren't the first to do it. They, they, they presented as if we, it was our idea, Rishi Sunak's yep. idea of furlough. It wasn't. Uh, but, this, I mean, this is all part of that dishonesty shebang that, yeah. that is being put out. Mm. But, but and as Valid put it, you know, we're all flawed. We all have our problems. Mm. Others have done this, haven't they? Sorry? No, no, I was going to say that it was interesting when the in that debate when the question was asked about whether uh, Boris Johnson, they thought, was honest or not. Uh, they were all dishonest. When they were <laughs> yeah, they were. <laughs> only <laughs> only, <laughs> only Tom and Tom and Tom and he said that he's not. But they were, yeah, <laughs> they, they, he was the only one yeah. who was clapped for it. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but uh, sorry, sir. Uh, others have done it as well. I mean, history tells yeah. us, does it not? Yeah, it does. I mean, I, and I think um, essentially, I think, look, when you've got Boris Johnson, I think he has become the kind of culmination of where democracy, unfortunately, has sort of been leading for a while. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, you, you asked about this integrity over electability sort of question. Um, and I think that's where we've got now. We, we, we're in a situation where democracy is more about getting yourself into power, not about what you're going to do when you're in power. It's... Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and I think this is this is this is a concern, and I don't think it's a, a, a you know I'm I think it's a it's a wider concern that most uh, commentators uh, have been uh, bringing up. I think it's a problem that the West is having to face up to at the moment is that um, the democracy you, you know like for example again take someone like Trump I mean he kind of blew out the sort of norms of um, of you know the democratic sort of uh, uh, process. Uh, you know, he kind of completely blew it out of the water. He did things his way and mm. actually got he ma- managed to get himself elected. I think to a large degree, Boris Johnson did something very similar. Mm. He knew that he just had to get himself into power. Once you're there, you figure it out. And I think that was that was the that was the big issue. But we have seen it historically. You know, for example, we talk about Watergate. You know, you talk Partygate or not, but yeah. the whole name always yeah. came from Watergate, which was essentially uh, Richard Nixon. You know covering up what was, a, uh, you know, I mean, they, they had actually uh, gone in. And it, to nowadays, it seems sort of quite small <laughs> that um, somebody tried to get uh, a lot of information about uh, the Democrats, um, uh, you know, and then he uh, he completely covered it up. And, you know, he, he ultimately brought his downfall. Yeah. Um, but you have, I think, more serious issues that um, followed. I mean, for example, you had someone like Lyndon Johnson mm-hmm. talking about the Vietnam War. I mean, and this is, I think, this kind of goes to the heart of, what the problem is he very clearly said before the vietnam war you know like that none of we wouldn't be sending millions you know like uh, thousands of our uh, boys over there to fight a war that they should be fighting themselves essentially he got himself into power immediately straight away in march the following year he sent tens of thousands of uh, troops into the vietnam war into one of the most i think you know it, you, we can sort of arguably say probably one of the biggest failed wars in, oh, absolutely. Uh, in yeah. American um, history, yeah. it's, 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 the yeah. and, um, it's, it's the trademark that you you compare all other absolutely. Yeah. And I think more recently, and I think you know, you touched upon this uh, about Tony Blair earlier mm. on. I mean, we've had we've had the Iraq War. I mean, the Iraq War again. We know that that was built up on on a lie, and um, you know, it's been seen to be uh, well, and, and a supported lie. Whether it was by a more knowing lies. lie or whether it was an unknowing lie. Who you know, who knows? But it was a lie, right? It was, you know, the, it, we all went in uh, into something where a lot of people were saying this doesn't exist. They said it did. We went in; it didn't exist. This is where we are. And what's ultimately happened is that mistrust with the electorate has now really seeped through. Hmm. I think what certain uh, pol- political, I think you know, um, analysts saw was. Even with those lies taking place, there were still that. The, the, um, for example, the Labour Party still got elected after going into Iraq War. Um, you know, George Bush also had two terms even after, um, you know, like the failure of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, uh, you know, he still uh, managed to get himself through a second term. Mm. So th- th- there is a reality that, yes, there is a problem with the electorate that um, uh, I think charisma uh, charisma and personality is beginning to take more of an effect. Uh, and also, and, al- and, and I would have thought the media, because once the media is on your side, and especially particular newspapers, then you know that the public is going to be duped into believing things which are not true. And I think that is, you know what, that is one of the key uh, elements. And I think it's one of the key points uh, you've just raised. Is once you have, uh, I, for example, we know that for example, Tony Blair, the only way that he became uh, prime minister was prior to um, uh, the election in 1997. He flew all the way out to Australia mm. and had a meeting with Rupert Murdoch, right? Knowing full well that if you have certain parts of the media on your side, 
you're more likely to get through. And that's exactly what happened. And he was very astute at that sort of, um, uh, you know, that part of uh, thing. So one has to say that that actually, uh, where we are currently, is a culmination of that, uh, mm. much to, to a much higher degree. I mean, um, you know, if you can get certain uh, parts of uh, the media on your side, yeah. it's much more likely that you'll get through. And if you, I think more important, not so much if you get the media, I think if you represent a certain... Um, a certain part of society's interest, you're more likely to be able to uh, get into power. Um, Let me ask Waleed something here. Mm. Um, But before you do that, can I ask Saif, I mean, do you think that the established media is less relevant now that we've got social media? I think what the one thing that you absolutely have right now is there is being we've seen a democratization a little bit of media as well. People choose where and uh, how they pick up their media. You have a lot more at your disposal. You have a lot more commentary at your disposal, and I think it's definitely in the in the you know in the, in the nicest possible way. I think it's your generation is past it. <laughs> your kind of you know you very much. many people within your generation are, are going to still rely uh, heavily on print media and certain parts of the media. Yeah, Willie has, <laughs> has his copies of the newspapers in, yeah, the, yeah. in the studio. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. But I think you're you're seeing this kind of millennial generation, mm-hmm. which now picks up, and you know you'll see it from your children a lot more. You know, many of them probably. Don't pick up the news, uh, a newspaper. They probably don't even know what it is anymore for the large part. But they're, they're probably um, a lot more uh, connected to the political sort of um, domain than, uh, than than previous generations have been. So um, really, they, they're, they're picking the, they're, they're picking where they get their media sources from. I think it's become a lot more polarized. I think that's the one issue with uh, social media. You, you, you get a lot more polarized. In your view, mm. um, you, you you fail to see the sort of nuance. However, um, there there is a lot more at your disposal. You you know you can make you, you're easier to you, sort you of can, but 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 it needs to be decided a lot better because at the moment people will pick up any false media, uh, social media reports, and take yes. it as truthful. Um, and there's no accountability, whereas mm. the, uh, the, the, the the traditional press that we are used to, <laughs> my, my yeah. son often, often complains, <laughs> yeah. Dad, why are you still not working paperless? <laughs> he has any piece of paper in my, in my room. Let's move on a little bit. Um, the Holy Quran, in the verse that we read out earlier, states that when you put people in authority, uh, you have the responsibility of acting justly and meet out true justice, right? Yeah. Now, the American historian, author, and diplomat Washington Irving wrote about the Holy Prophet of Islam. He says, he treated friends and strangers, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, with equity and was beloved by the common people for their affability with which he received them and listened to their complaints. Now, is that not what we want from our leaders? How did the Holy Prophet, ex- you know, this is from a, a person who's not a Muslim, yeah. lives in a country which probably 
put most propaganda against Islam than any other country, uh, debatable, but uh, amongst the, the leading. And yet people from that uh, nation write this about the Holy Prophet. So how did the Holy Prophet execute his duties, which many non-Muslim historians have outlined? He's not the only one. There are many who've done it, who've read the, the Holy Prophet's life and, and understood it. Uh, so so how, how did he go about? Because certainly the Quran was his, his Bible, not the Bible. His cue. The Quran yeah. was his cue to mm. to live his life, and the Quran. This is what he taught, and he practiced that. So, what what did the Holy Prophet do, where he built this trust and this affability? Possibly Washington Irving puts the you know he's got the finger on the pulse there, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I think you know when I was sort of doing my research on this a little bit and I sort of read a lot more about the Charter of Medina and how people treated him you know uh, in the thing I mean they gave him promise that he was and I think it goes back to that same point the reason why they gave him um, the sort of uh, why he was given the measure of the sort of arbiter of everyone mm. was that he had ultimate trust you know he, he was trusted to always take into account all uh, everything that was in front of him and make the right choice and I think this is uh, essentially what comes down to it is um, when you treat people fairly, you know, like sometimes almost take yourself out of it. Um, uh, you know, people would come to him, you know, like from the Jewish faith, you know, like obviously Medina at the time, you know, there was all, the, the, there was a set of different tribes uh, uh, and people came to him from the Jews and he would ask the question beforehand, how do you want me to arbitrate this? Do you want me to arbitrate it based on my uh, morality, my Islamic morality, on your Jewish morality, or do you want me to sort of take a completely independent approach, uh, you know, as arbitrate, arbiter and sort of view it on, on my basis, you know, like on his personal, you know, and that was a sort of key point. He, he almost also took away the point that there was his view and there was an Islamic viewpoint, mm. you know, that, that, and you would be judged based on what you know uh, he believed uh, to be the case and everyone had the choice to do so right and um, and it was that sort of fairness that he inculcated and we you know and we see you know time and time again we see in so many of the sayings of the holy prophet all of his decisions that he was made were based on fairness he would explain them he would uh, you know each and every decision and that's that another thing you know an explanation uh, as to why something was taking place and it's created our own morality in Islam. And I think if you follow the Islamic faith down, you know, like down to what we know, um, you can actually have a very fair system of rule. And it's really important. Islam doesn't actually give, it doesn't adopt a system of, of rule that, uh, uh, it doesn't say that it must be done a certain way. It actually, it gives people the free choice to adopt. Uh, a system that uh, that suits them. And I think um, what you said was that that, that trust that he he had. Uh, we were yes. talking earlier about uh, the companions who had not gone to the wars with with the Holy Prophet, and and yet they were ready to to lay out their their feelings and their truthfulness to him because they trusted exactly. him completely and because they knew yes. that whatever was meted out to them would be just. Uh, and, yeah. and that's what the Holy Prophet uh, of Islam certainly did. So, well, looking at uh, the the debate um, on on Friday, did did any of them enthuse you with trust? <laughs> I think I think um, there was probably a few. I would say there was probably uh, one <laughs> in particular. I would probably say, uh, to a degree, I thought. Um, 
uh, I, 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 again, again, let's just put our cards on the table. I think Tom Tugendhat, I think because he approached, because he didn't, he had no uh, relation to this pre- present government and he had also been quite against specific uh, points, mm. probably came out, he came out looking very good um, of it because I think for the large part he could be very honest about his opinions. Mm. Uh, he didn't have to sort of fluff it up with, um, uh, uh, he, he didn't have to sort of defend Anything, anything that he had, he had done exactly yeah <laughs> and that's why yeah. he came across as trustworthy yeah. right that's i think that's the uh, that's the part yeah. um and i think that is that is probably yeah. uh, whilst it's also a positive for him i think it's also it kind of shows where we are at um you know that um, but but some of his uh, policies might not be agreeable to us because mm. he certainly wants to build up the arms trade and, uh, and exactly and i mean type of thing. that's what i mean you, you can look at policy as a, as a different matter but i think trustworthiness mm. uh you know like based on trustworthiness you can sort of say, okay, probably he came across the best hmm. because um, be- because he could be honest, um, sure. and I think that's that's the key thing. I think one of the things is we, uh, and you know, there's a UCL research point that actually goes as far as saying 98% of the electorate now do not trust their uh, their politicians. You know, the people that govern them. Right. That's I mean, that's that, that's, that's yeah, an immense that's amount. You know, a terrible uh, state of affairs in a world like we, we live in. I actually want to know who the two percent are. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah staunch Tory supporters, no doubt. Uh, Seth, <laughs> there's a lot more we could discuss, but unfortunately, time is not on our side. But thank you very much and sharing your views and and entertaining exactly. our viewers, uh, our listeners. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Exactly. But you know, Margaret Thatcher, she was a woman that you could you could trust, right? In the sense that she wouldn't lie. She, whatever she said, she meant. It meant from her heart. But the policies she carried out mm. were extreme. You know, were never going to favour the, the the working class. It was always for the for the rich and the rich getting richer. So trust alone is not enough, as the Quran states. Justice is also important. Yes, yes the two go hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. And and you and uh, and that is what is missing in our uh, politicians' trust. I mean, th- that's gone out of the window, uh, and, and the policies of these people. Mm. We had one individual who was trustworthy, honest, but people went against him. Corbyn, the, mm. the press media, you know, mm. went totally against him, and and put accusations of anti-Semitism, which were far-fetched, you know, defending mm. the rights of someone does not mean you're anti-Semitic. We will fight and, and fight for the rights of the Palestinian people. Mm. doesn't make us anti-Semitic. No, no, Absolutely. no. no. Right. no but I think that the key thing, I think, just to wrap this thing up properly, is mm. that I think that uh, what is missing and what was not missing as far as the Holy Prophet, Peace people anyone was concerned, is fear of God. The fact is that God is always watching and that you're accountable to him in the end. And if people lose sight of that, then when they get into power, they feel that they can do anything and they can do anything with impunity. Nobody's going to be asking of them as to how they've conducted themselves. They can do whatever they want. And that's what leads to injustice. And that's what leads to lying and trying to cover up things Mm. that you've done wrong. So if people uh, had uh, greater fear of God and uh, a conviction that they are going to be answerable to mm. him for whatever they do, then these kind of uh, uh, flaws would not exist uh, in our politicians Indeed. and something that did not exist in uh, the character of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon Right, Talith, we must move on to our next segment of the show, which is the Community News. Weekend World. Community News. 
well, it, uh, mm. the International Ministerial Conference on Freedom and Religion of Belief or belief ha- was held la- two weeks ago. Uh, we had Azza Chaudhry here speaking on behalf of the Amni Muslim community, uh, telling us about uh, the event and what they were looking forward to and a key role that the Amni Muslim community played in that, uh, or they were going to be played. It was attended by a large number of dignitaries, faith leaders and NGOs from around the world. The event opened with key messages from various faith and political leaders, including His Holiness, Azamiza Musru Ramad. Let's listen to a small clip of his message that was played at the opening of that event. Now we have a, another video message, this time from His Holiness Hazrat Mezo Nasro Ahmed, head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Let's hear His Holiness's message. In the name of Allah, the gracious, ever merciful. I am very pleased to learn that the International Ministerial Conference on Freedom of Religion or Belief 2022 is commencing today. In order to promote and protect the fundamental principles of freedom of religion and belief. As per the theme of this inaugural session, it is certainly the case that freedom of religion and belief are core human rights that must be preserved and protected for everyone and everywhere. Though we are living in an increasingly secularized world in which people are moving away from religion, many millions of people around the world continue to adhere to religious values and it is essential that they are able to live their lives according to their beliefs and convictions. Thus, as the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, I sincerely commend and appreciate the fact that you are holding this conference to defend religious freedom globally. Uh, that was the small part of the introduction given by His Holiness Azamiza Masur Ahmed, head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community worldwide. Uh, joining us this morning is the director and co-founder of the All Faiths Network, Martin Waitman. Uh, Martin has a keen interest in human rights and an advocate for freedom of rights, uh, freedom and rights. As he stated in a blog, we sometimes, this is what he stated, we sometimes forget the first and foremost in our community of people living together, we should be protecting the spirituality of individuals from a religious perspective. Uh, good morning, welcome Martin to the Weekend World Show once again. Good morning, Gassan. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me. No, no, it's always our pleasure to have uh, such eminent guests. Uh, you've been the co-founder and uh, director of uh, All Face Network, doing some great works, particularly in human rights. Tell me, one of the key roles is to promote, or should I say, defend human rights. What led you to this, um, uh, may I say, a very uh, onerous and noble project it is? Well, I think it it came from my own um, impulse and uh, and awareness of, of spiritual freedom and my own spirituality, and uh, I saw around the world that many people just did not have that opportunity. That they were repressed in many different ways, not only uh, uh, in um, shall we say, less uh, developed countries, but mm. also in East, in uh, European countries as well. And I felt it was something essential for me to do something about it. 
and and it's not easy to do something about it, and you have to get off your backside to do it, and you certainly have, and you've certainly set up a wonderful organization. Now, you were at the Ministerial Freedom or Religion, uh, Freedom of Religion or Belief event. Can you tell us uh, sort of who were the attendees, how did the event go, and what were the key highlights f- for you from that event? Sure. Well, first I'd like to say it is um, it's a very good initiative, and uh, it started uh, in 2018. It was an inst- instigated by the U.S. government. Uh, it was held in Washington in uh, 2018 and again in 2019. Um, it is essentially an initiative to bring governments together in order to get them to be more proactive about defending freedom of religion and belief. And um, it was uh, during lockdowns, it was hosted online by Poland, and now this year it was held in the UK. And so I think it's it's great that the UK hosted it. Um, there were supposedly representatives from about 100 uh, government representatives, I think, from a uh, hundred countries. Mm. Um, if you look at the declarations that were signed afterwards, there's only about 30 countries that have actually signed them, um, including, of course, UK and, uh, uh, and the US, who I think are really the main drivers behind this. Mm-hmm. Still, um, it's it's a great initiative. More needs to be done, that's for sure. Um, but I think we, if this keeps building year after year, then it will have impact on different countries, whether it be simply by developing understanding with different governments, getting them to act, or if needs be, placing sanctions on countries that are not respecting um, freedom of religion and belief. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I, I was going to say that we, we're in the 21st century here and persecution, it appears, is still ongoing around the world. I mean, what are the causes of persecution and why why is it still happening? I'll give you one example. There was a human rights uh, event in the European Parliament and uh, the Ahmadiyya persecution was being addressed and the Pakistani ambassador came in and he denied that there was any persecution of Ahmadis when it's clearly state-sponsored. So when people deny this, there's not going to be solution. I I only give that as an example and I could quote many other examples. But it's sad, is it not, that that in the 21st century we are still going through and and you could see some sort of persecution taking place around the world. Yeah, it it is sad. It's very sad. And You know, um, we... I, I think that one of the solutions is somehow or other to develop cuni- communication between parties mm. and to somehow get them to meet in the middle or, or, or in whatever place, whether that's the middle or not. Um, because people of reason, of good reason, should be able to agree upon something that is vital and humane as freedom of religion and belief. Why do they not do it is your 
was your question. And mm. of course, that is a very difficult question to answer. But, you know, some people are just have a very repressive frame of mind. And I think that's a small percentage of people in, in this world. But they do tend to influence others, and they too do tend to have sway on them. And so I think it's a matter of education and communication. And in the extreme, uh, well, then we have to start looking at sanctions hmm. in order to implement the most egregious um, um, discrimination yeah. That, yeah. that exists and isn't resolving. In other words, putting it's pressure. It's not an easy job. No, it's not an easy job. In other words, putting pressure on to the politicians uh, and, and to ensure that that doesn't happen. Um, thank you for sharing those views with us and sharing your thoughts. And uh, uh, wonderful they are at, at that. Uh, joining us also is uh, Tracy Coleman. Tracy is a public relations officer at the Church of Scientology, who organised a fringe event linked to the conference. Um, uh, highlighting uh, persecution. Uh, good morning, Tracy. Good morning. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you very much for joining us, Tracy. Uh, Tracy, uh, you were part of the organizing com uh, committee who organized uh, an event, a uh, fringe event, uh, specifically talking about the persecution. Uh, can you tell us... Uh, uh, so what that event was, what the topic of the day was, and, and how did that event go, and who was there? Absolutely. So, yeah, the All Faith Network, we, we decided to organize um, a fringe event prior to the ministerial's uh, first day, and our event was around the theme of religious intolerance, problems, and solutions. Mm. So... We, we wanted to provide a platform where different faiths um, could have an opportunity to express and communicate the issues that they were facing in practicing their own faith, but also we wanted to focus on solutions and potential solutions. And we had about 45 people in attendance. Uh, we had pagans, Sikhs, Hindus, Muslims, Christians, and we even had a couple of guests that popped over from America. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, those were the two ladies, I don't know if you met them, from Outreach Aid to the Americas. And they'd come over from the ministerial. They found our event on Eventbrite. And so they joined us. So it was it was a real kind of like international, all-faith, um, embracive event. Mm. Um, and it was done in the style of um, respect for different religions. Right. And, and being allowed to communicate the persecution and discrimination that you face. Yeah. And, um, and, 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 and the speaker spoke specifically of the persecution happening to mm -hmm. those particular communities. Was that yeah. an eye-opener, that uh, the sort of persecution that does go around the world is still taking place in the world today? Well, um, for myself, personally, yes. Um, we heard from your good self, uh, you spoke about the persecution of the Ahmadis in Pakistan and also how that outflows or flows over into the West, even in here in the UK. Mm. Um, we had a gentleman, Mandeep Singh, speaking about the Sikh persecution, uh, a gentleman from the Rohingya community, and then also um, Eric Ruth spoke about persecution in, in Europe. So I think all of our guests 
even though they personally may or may not face persecution, one for one in the feedback was kind of almost a shock yeah. that these things are still happening in in our century today. Mm. Mm. Uh, if I can bring Martin back into the discussion, Martin, uh, I mean, you were co-organizer of this event as well. And uh, in terms of solutions, because we want to look forward, this is what this is about. It's not about sort of you know delving into what's been happening, but also want to know what's what's what the solutions are. What sort of solutions were there, if any, and uh, how do you see we can resolve some of these or prevent these persecutions? Well, um, I guess it goes back to um, what I said earlier, education and communication. And it's the only real way mm. that these, these kind of issues can be resolved. I mean, they can't be resolved by violence. I mean, that is certainly not an option, even though violence is often the, uh, uh, the method that is used by the oppressor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're not, we're not going to solve it by violence. We can only solve it by identifying and isolating the, the key perpetrators of uh, discrimination. Uh, and shall we say isolating them educating people about what they're really doing and, and bringing about communication with different parties who are involved. Mm. Uh, that's, you could say that's perhaps an overview, but then we have at the political level, which is where this ministerial comes in. Um, you know, in civil society, that is the way we have to go. Um, but at a political level, then the more that we can get politicians uh, supporting freedom of religion belief and I will add in here not putting economic interests as a priority because I think that is one of the big problems is that governments mm. uh, tend to put the political interest uh, first above the human rights or at least that can be done. I mean, often governments speak out as well. But, you know, the more that human rights becomes the primary thing that should be protected and that politicians um, put pressure on other governments where there, are, where there is discrimination, then these are the channels and the way forward that uh, I can see. Sure. Uh, I'll come on to human rights with one last question in a second. Let me ask uh, Tracy first of all. Um, one of the solutions um, is to present the positivity of the of the religious communities and the works that they do. And the All Faith Network produced a book uh, called People of Faith Rising Above COVID. Uh, is that something that uh, highlights the good works that the communities do at times of dire need, particularly when we were going through COVID? Is that what it was highlighting? Absolutely. I think the whole book is a complete testament to the fantastic work that people of faith and all faiths across the UK and the world really, you know, present and uh, supply. They fill a gap in government provision, the provision by councils in the UK. And uh, yes, 
uh, the book is fantastic. It, it's representing, I think it's 14 their chapters with different faiths, what they did to help bring solutions during COVID-19. And it, it is this kind of, uh, this messages that we need to push out from all of us in the faith community mm. about good work that we're doing and somehow penetrate the media with this good news. Because very often, from my perspective, I, I feel like we tend to see the maybe the negatives or the things that are not right or the conflicts rather than the positivity that faith brings to the world. Mm. Me and Valid, my co-host, we were discussing about the role of media and mm. we were talking that uh, much of the media is either owned by rich people or people with certain agendas, political agendas. So we might not get that. Uh, what do you call it, publicity that you need from them. But social media is a, is a very good way of doing that uh, if you can do it effectively. Is that something you will, are you considering? Well, the All Faith Network, we do have a Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> and we're trying to get more educated in it. And I think if it's a well-run program, absolutely. In fact, one of the speakers at the government ministerial um, spoke about how he rolled out uh, the, the concept of religious freedom on social media and the fact that Facebook, I believe, um, they have certain policies against promoting religion. So I'm, I'm definitely going to make a link with him and find out how we can use his insight and his knowledge to uh, push forward everything that is good about faith in the UK. With, with your enthusiasm, I'm sure you'll do a good job by contacting him. Well done to you. Martin, I was going to say on the Human Rights Charter, uh, that, that is something uh, that is, many nations are bound to by it and agree to it. They've signed up for it. Are there any nations who haven't signed up to it? And, and those who have, are they adhering to those Human Rights Charters? Because I know many are not. Uh, yes. Well, I'm not quite sure, actually. Uh, I think pretty much all nations have signed up to it, but I'm not, there must be a few that haven't. But whether they're applying it is, of course, uh, a vastly different uh, issue. And um, many, many governments uh, are not properly applying it or are not applying it in different areas. They may be in some, but not in others. I mean, even if you look in the UK, you know, you will see much discussion about... Um, you know, you can just take the, I don't know, one issue that comes to my head, you know, the shipping uh, refugees uh, to Rwanda. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not really going into that, but I mean, it, it seems to me that uh, this, is, this is a very conflictual um, subject. And, uh, uh, there's a lot, a lot that has to be done to uh, bring this world mm. up to decent standards of human rights. And of course, different countries are at different levels in their application. And, um, you know, there are reports uh, done by uh, the US government, by different uh, entities about the state of human rights in the world, or, you know, like they do yearly reports. Uh, so that alone gives uh, a good guide and indicator that not all is well. <laughs> Indeed, so uh, and, and a lot more work needs to be done. Uh, Tracy, yeah. last word with you. Uh, what sort of uh, 
efforts can be made to bring people towards uh, uh, stop the persecution, so to speak, and to promote the good works communities do? Well, I think the one thing that I took away from the ministerial and from our event was that we are stronger if we work together. And if we speak up for another faith who is being persecuted and we defend their faith, that has such an incredibly powerful message and communication. Um, and I think that we are all responsible for the concept of religion and spirituality on this planet. And that would be the way that I see faith working together and going forward to stop the persecution. Hmm. Uh, last word to you, Martin. Well, uh, I think Tracy said that very well. Um, uh, as I do think that this, the ministerial, as that is the subject of this uh, discussion, the ministerial is a very good initiative. I think mm -hmm. the UK did very well to host it and to air the issue and to bring many governments together. Mm -hmm. um, you know, things could certainly be improved on the way that it was done, but um, the fact is that this initiative was a great one, and Trace is totally right. Working together, uh, joining forces, standing up for each other is clearly the way forward. Indeed. Uh, Tracy, Martin, thank you very much for joining me, um, and uh, good luck with your uh, efforts in bringing human rights to the people of the world and uh, highlighting the issues around it and may uh, God bless you with those efforts Thank you and you too, it's thank a you. pleasure uh, No yeah. problem Thank right. you, Asan okay. Tracy, thanks a lot for joining me Sorry, Martin, there's a question here no, no. I no, 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 I was just going to ask you is this okay. an annual event and where's the next one going to be held? Uh, Martin, do you know? You seem to know no, where is the next one going to be held, and when? Um, well, I, it should be in approximately one year from now. There is not any um, firm uh, confirmation mm -hmm. of who will be holding it. Mm -hmm. I've heard that... It no, it won't be Moscow. ...the Brazil. <laughs> no, no, I don't think it will be Moscow. <laughs> but I've heard China. Brazil. Yeah, well, hmm. that would <laughs> not work, I think. Right. But Brazil is what I've heard. That's ah, what I've right, talked okay. about. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Right. Uh, mm. Ruth, uh, so, the Ministry of Event, actually, the Amelia Muslim community had a very strong presence there. Uh, not only was the address, as we heard, partially from His Holiness, mm. uh, but also uh, in the fringe meetings, we were... Uh, taking part we had our own little uh, sessions mm -hmm. in which uh, one we uh, there's a film made against the persecution after the Lahore bombings um, okay. and, and, and highlighting the persecution Ahmadis are facing and the one thing that that's unique with the Ahmadiyya persecution that it is a state pers state sponsored persecution yes. because uh, we, we Something in the in law, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. You know, whereas, for example, mm. let's take Pakistan. Mm. Uh, there are pockets of attacks on Christians and Hindus. Condemnable what happens. Mm. But they are normally for some sort of gain. Financial gain, land grab, an accusation will be made against someone for being blasphemous. It's the blasphemous, mm. blaspheming law mm. that is a problem there.
So they'll accuse someone, a Christian or a Hindu, not because they're a Hindu or Christian, but mm. they're the easy ones to pick, but because they want some land from them mm. or mm. they want something from them and they'll accuse them of burning the Quran or, mm. or you know, being uh, nasty to the Holy Prophet mm. or something. Mm. We had a case of a Sri Lankan uh, manager of a, of a shoe oh, factory yes. and uh, his employee had been working poorly, so he had been warned uh, of being sacked or mm. he was sacked. And he, in turn, reported that he had torn a poster which depicted the Holy Prophet or the verses of the Quran. Mm. And suddenly a mob attack took place mm. and, and the guy was butchered. And, mm. uh, you know, uh, so there was no... Uh, this blasphemy law was used for that purpose. Mm. But the Ahmadiyya situation... So that's that's an individual yeah. or a group of, or yeah. a family for firm. But for every single Ahmadi in Pakistan mm. comes under this law. Mm. So whichever part of Pakistan you are, you will be charged. Mm -hmm. And horrifically, mm. this Eid, uh, a neighbor reported that uh, Amadis had sacrificed a goat for Eid mm. in their backyard. Mm. He had climbed onto the roof of the neighbor, witnessed it, and mm. reported to the police. And the, the Ahmadis were charged for mm -hmm. practicing or pretending to be Muslims. Mm -hmm. So this is the state. Mm -hmm. This is what's called state-sponsored uh, persecution. Mm -hmm. State-sponsored persecution. Yeah. yeah, very sad. And uh, it's not, it, it won't bode well for the country. I mean, this kind of uh, insurrection and dissension within it um, is going to be, in the end, harmful to the nation. Certainly, and, and, and the standing it has uh, in, world, uh, in the world, um, political world, hmm. is that nations are judged by how they treat the minorities, hmm. very hmm. important part. And the sad factor is that in the Pakistan flag, where you have one, the whole of the green representing the Muslims, the white strip, if you remember, Henry Smith was a vexologist, yeah. told us that the white strip on the Afri on the Pakistani mm. flag donates the minorities. Yes. And Ahmadis don't even fit on that one mm. because they don't have the right to vote. Mm. They can't practice their faith. Mm. They can't practice their faith. They can't uh, propagate their faith. And we've had several incidences and cases where individuals have been attacked. And mm. Uh, I remember when this law ordinance was introduced, a little baby was arrested because uh, a wedding card had gone out and on top of the wedding card had Bismillah written on it. Mm -hmm. And on the RSVP, they had put the baby's name as well. Mm -hmm. And everyone on that RSVP na list name was, was arrested yes, for... Yes. For writing Bismillah and okay. pretending to be Muslims, mm -hmm. and the baby was included. So this mm -hmm. is how extreme this law is, yeah. and it becomes absurd, doesn't it? It becomes absurd, and and it the nation of religion, absolutely, huh? and, mm. and the nation as a result suffers mm. from mm. it. So mm. of sad, sad. sad state of affairs. We've come to the end of our show. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had some lovely guests uh, with the news review from Azhar, yeah. uh, Saf on the. Governance and credibility of our MPs yeah. uh, and the state. Then Will you be watching the debate tonight? Uh, uh, we'll see because uh -huh. the last one didn't impress me. Okay. Uh, and then, so, but but as a 
but it doesn't matter because you're not a conservative voter no, anymore, but are as you? as a journalist, I should be watching it. Uh, and uh, certainly we had a very interesting discussion with Martin and Tracy about human rights yes. and the Human Rights Charter and the good works that uh, is happening. And uh, our thanks to our listeners for listening in and to Zishan for our uh, producer or for the technical help that he assists us with. So thank you very much and we hope to listen to speak to you in two weeks time during the Jalsa Salana. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.